Hey everyone, this is Mike DeBliss. This is part three of criminal tax liabilities and sentencing. This um, episode will be pretty short and uh, sweet and get right to the point. It's going to be on what's called the pre-sentence investigation report. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the uh, pre-sentence investigation report, it's sometimes um, abbreviated PSR. And um, essentially, um, what it consists of is background information about the defendant and information about the crime that uh, the defendant pleaded guilty to or was found guilty of at trial. Um, and it kind of, um, it kind of uh, uh, displays the intersection of the two and um, is prepared by the probation officer. And so the probation officer has a duty to interview the defendant and to uh, provide, um, you know, information from the interview um, uh, that the defendant provides in that report, as well as um, information from the um, investigation reports uh, that um, consummated the discovery in the case. So the PSR um, is a very powerful tool because it's what the judge uses to um, to come up with the defendant sentence. Um, the judge uses the PSR to determine the mitigating and the aggravating factors and um, weighing those factors and then coming up with a uh, sentence that is fair and in the interest of justice. So um, basically, um, the way this uh, starts is, again, um, we again the defendant has either pled guilty or been found guilty of the crime. A probation officer um, subsequently interviews the defendant. Um, in the PSR, the probation officer uh, will... Uh, basically do a number of things. First, the probation officer will calculate the defendant's offense level and criminal history category. Second, the probation officer will state the resulting sentencing range and kinds of sentences available. Third, the probation officer will identify any factors relevant to the kind of sentence, um, such as probation, um, home detention, imprisonment. Fourth, um, and this might be the most um, important one, uh, the probation officer will make a recommendation of a sentence within the applicable sentencing range. And five, um, the probation officer will identify any basis for departing from the applicable sentencing range. Now, while the probation officer um, makes a recommendation, that in no way binds the judge to follow that recommendation. Um, it's just that, a recommendation. And the judge is the ultimate arbiter, if you will, of the sentence. Uh, the PSR includes, um, as we've already discussed, uh, background information about the defendant. And when we talk about background information, uh, the first thing that might come to mind is um, the defendant's prior criminal record, and that is true um, to the extent that the defendant has one, but we're also talking about other factors and other variables as well. Um, so uh, human factors uh, such as the defendant's family life, um, the defendant's um, 
um, marital status, uh, the defendant's children, um, the defendant's uh, uh, the defendant's uh, parents, um, things that um, you know all go into uh, the fabric of being human and what has um, you know made this person into the person they are uh, today. And uh, to the extent that um, there are positive things going on in the defendant's life, um, it's very important for defense counsel to include those in any sentencing memorandum that uh, he or she submits to the judge. Um, and uh, as I say all the time, nothing is too small, um, especially if it's uh, something positive going on in the, defend- in the defendant's life. It could be a part-time job that the defendant holds at um, you know, a fast food restaurant. Um, or a waitressing job, um, or a cooking job that the defendant has. It could be any type of volunteer service that the defendant has taken part of. If the defendant has any issues with substance abuse, uh, to the extent that he or she has um, proactively um, taken the initiative to get help uh, for the substance abuse problem by going to NA classes, Narcotics Anonymous classes, or Alcohol um, Anonymous classes, those things would uh, want, would uh, be presented in the sentencing memorandum as well. So again, um, you want to paint your client, if your defense counsel, in as um, favorable light as possible, and um, you know, let it be known that this is a this person, Johnny, is a human being um, who has aspirations, who has dreams, who has ambition um, to, uh, you know, to do things. In certain cases, you might have a youthful defendant who's in their late teens or early 20s who um, is in college or pro or uh, pursuing a vocation, and um, they might have plans to become an auto mechanic. They might have plans to um, pursue a degree or might even be in the process of obtaining a, a degree in um, some type of um, profession such as uh, accounting or um, teaching or economics. All of these things should be brought to the attention of the judge so that the judge understands that this is not a person who is simply uh, sitting back and um, with all of this time on their hands, plotting um, what their next, uh, you know, uh, what their next scheme is going to be. In addition to the background information that we've discussed and painting the client in as human a light as possible, um, we do uh, have the defendant's prior criminal record to the extent that he or she has one. That would, of course, be included in the PSR. Um, some of the other things that the PSR includes is the defendant's financial condition and uh, finally information sufficient to calculate restitution. Now I want to make a fine distinction here. Um, even though defense counsel will um, humanize his or her client in the sentencing memo, it doesn't necessarily mean that every um, every good thing, so to speak, that the defense counsel uh, raises in the uh, defense uh, brief will make it into the pre-sentence investigation report. And the reason why is because 
Um, the pre-sentence investigation report is prepared by the probation officer. So the probation officer, um, you know, reserves the right to uh, cherry pick, so to speak, what um, information from the uh, defense counsel's pre-sentence uh, from the defense counsel's uh, pre-sentencing uh, memorandum makes it into the PSR. And for that matter, um, the government will also prepare a sentencing memorandum and the probation officer also reserves a right to uh, cherry pick and take what he or she deems relevant from the government's sentencing memorandum and include it in the PSR. But suffice to say, um, the things that are mandatory um, and that must be included are those that I previously mentioned in addition to the defendant's prior criminal record, his or her financial condition, and information sufficient to calculate restitution. Now, a defendant is entitled to be represented by counsel at the interview with the probation officer, and um, it's actually a good rule of thumb for defense counsel to be there um, because things uh, sometimes go awry in that interview. And um, as a defense attorney who has been doing this for a number of years, I can't tell you how many times I've had a client backpedal uh, from the uh, plea allocution that they've given in court um, when they're interviewed by the probation officer. Uh, so what they sometimes do is they sometimes uh, they sometimes um, distance themselves from the offense, or they sometimes uh, um, they sometimes will. Um, will uh, unilaterally uh, dispute the allegation to the probation officer and deny any responsibility whatsoever, um, even though they've pled guilty. And uh, to the extent that happens um, and they appear in court for sentencing, the judge usually will have them sworn in again and ask them um, under oath if they stand by the plea that they gave uh, perhaps uh, four to six weeks earlier, whenever it was. Um, and it just doesn't look good uh, because it looks as if the defendant is trying to play fast and loose and, um, you know, was being evasive um, and uncooperative with the probation officer. So uh, we don't want that to happen. Uh, that's uh, yet another reason why it's important for defense counsel to be present at the time the defendant is interviewed by the probation officer for their PSR. Now, uh, the PSR is important for two primary reasons. Uh, first, um, judges give deference to the recommendations of the probation officer. Now, as I've um, alluded to before, it, uh, it doesn't mean that the judge has to follow the recommendation of the probation officer to a T. Um, the judge is uh, responsible for imposing sentence, not the probation officer. However, the judge certainly can be swayed by the recommendations of the probation officer and oftentimes do give deference to the recommendations of the probation officer um, in the PSR. So the PSR is instrumental in the sentencing judge's determination, but not dispositive of the judge's um, sentencing determination. Both the defense and the government may make formal objections to the PSR um, at the time of the sentencing hearing, but at the end of the day, the judge will resolve all of the disputes that both sides have under 
a standard known as preponderance of the evidence. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the standard of preponderance of the evidence, it is um, the lowest standard that we have in the, um, in, uh, under the rules of evidence. Um, typically, there's three tiers. The first is preponderance of the evidence. The second is clear and convincing evidence, which is used um, more frequent than not in civil cases. And the third is beyond a reasonable doubt, which is um, the veritable, um, uh, the veritable uh, Greek tragedy of the, um, of the man who is pushing the boulder up the mountain. Um, that is how um, strong the burden of beyond a reasonable doubt is. And that's the way um, our founders wanted it to be because when it comes to the deprivation of liberty, uh, we don't ever want to see an innocent man convicted of a crime that they didn't commit. And so that's why the burden in criminal cases is always beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and uh, in some cases, federal judges have actually called it 80% certainty. So it's not 100% certainty, but it's damn near close um, that. Um, so uh, the burden is very high, and that goes for each and every element of the offense. Uh, the government has the absolute burden of proving each and every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. But um, again, when it comes to um, uh, sentencing disputes, um, the judge resolves them under the preponderance of the evidence standard. Incidentally, preponderance of the evidence standard is also used when it comes to the grand jury. And the grand jury is basically a group of people that are assembled and get to hear evidence in a case. And their job is to determine whether uh, there was what's called probable cause to believe that a crime was committed and that the defendant was the one who committed the crime. Uh, probable causes of, um, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, probable causes, uh, you know, is a lower standard, a lower threshold that is sometimes um, equivalent to the preponderance of the evidence. Uh, suffice to say, it's a very low standard, and that's why you will hear the expression that uh, this grand jury could have indicted a ham sandwich. Uh, the second thing that the PSR is important for is, apart from the judge and sentencing, the PSR follows the defendant throughout his time in prison and can impact various decisions as to the defendant after the judge imposes sentence. So what other decisions um, might those be? Well, uh, for example, if a defendant is sentenced to a period of uh, prison time, um, and is coming up on uh, the possibility of, uh, of um, supervised uh, release, um, the uh, parole board might actually, well, will actually uh, look at that PSR and um, make determinations based on what's contained in the PSR um, so uh, when determining whether the defendant is eligible for parole and uh, or supervised release. I should make a fine distinction here that uh, parole is available um, in, um, in, in the state uh, criminal justice system. When it comes to federal crimes um, these days, 
most sentences that are imposed in federal court um, are uh, require the defendant to serve the entire time. Um, so for state uh, crimes, and um, the PSR is very relevant uh, to parole boards as they will look to it in determining whether the defendant is eligible for parole at perhaps the first um, and earliest opportunity or whether uh, the defendant um, you know, gets to stay or has to stay a little bit longer in jail before um, they become eligible uh, for parole or supervised release. Um, so this PSR is very significant um, in, in uh, more than one way and um, also follows the defendant of through his or her um, life. Um, it you know is, is on their file. It becomes a permanent um, a permanent part of their record, and um, you know virtually is a um, uh, virtually is like a um, it, like the equivalent of a. Um, you know, a stamp um, on them. And so it's very important that, you know, if there are things that are unflattering or incorrect in the PSR, that they get raised at the time of sentencing and that they are disputed uh, vociferously um, so that uh, if there is any, um, you know, falsity to them or if there is no merit to them, they can be um, they can be uh, changed or they can be um, edited um, accordingly. Now, just because defense counsel, you know, finds something unflattering or the defendant finds something unflattering in the PSR doesn't mean that it's automatically going to be struck. Um, arguments, however, can be made for it to be struck. And at the end of the day, the judge is the ultimate arbiter. Once the PSR is prepared, the probation officer will provide a copy to the defendant, the defendant's attorney, and the prosecutor. The defense and the government have the opportunity, um, as I've already mentioned, to object to the PSR at the sentencing hearing. Uh, the rules of evidence do not apply to the admission of testimony or other evidence at the sentencing hearing. So that wraps up uh, what we're talking about with the PSR. Um, I want to just uh, wrap up this podcast episode with um, succinctly uh, mentioning the three times when defense counsel can have the biggest impact um, on a sentence that um, a defendant um, is sentenced to. Um, and again, I would um, I would narrow it down to three situations. The first situation is one where defense counsel bargains with the prosecutor. Um, and the example here is where a deal is struck between both parties as to the offense level. Um, theoretically, that's not binding on the probation officer. The probation officer could um, do something uh, radically different when it comes to calculating the recommended sentence. Uh, for example, he or she could calculate the recommended sentence differently than what the two sides agree to. However, that's very rare. If both sides tell the probation officer that they agree on something, typically the probation officer will rubber stamp it and um, you know, agree to it um, or recommend it rather in the PSR. The second situation is where defense counsel can have a big impact on uh, the defendant's uh, sentence 
is when defense counsel works with the probation officer independently of the prosecutor, um, essentially without forming an agreement with the prosecutor. Um, however, <clears throat> the goal here is to try and get the probation officer to include favorable facts in the PSR. And so um, this is why it's important for a defense counsel to submit a sentencing memorandum to the probation officer with um, things that paint his or her client in a favorable light. And those have to be couched in terms of the mitigating factors that um, are available. Um, mitigating factors are essentially uh, factors that, um, you know, uh, that uh, allow the judge to perhaps um, engage in a departure. Um, and uh, they're very influential on the court. But there has to be facts that um, underlie uh, mitigating factors. The uh, defense counsel can't just um, advance um, you know, mitigating factors arbitrarily by stating the defendant's a youthful defendant, the defendant um, has no prior criminal history, the defendant um, did not intend his or her conduct to result in the harm that it caused. Those are but a few mitigating factors. Defense counsel can't just arbitrarily list those um, like uh, he or she is preparing a laundry list of items that they need to pick up at the supermarket. Uh, they have to be um, supported by facts. And so you have to get to know your client on a very intimate level so that you can list the facts that go to supporting the mitigating factors that you cite. And um, that will give you a strong opportunity to um, convince the probation officer that those mitigating factors are valid and appropriate in this case and uh, should be relied upon by the judge when it comes to sentencing the defendant. So again, in situation two, uh, we're still dealing with, uh, you know, with a situation where there is, um, uh, where there is, uh, you know, discussion between defense counsel and another party, but it's not a bargain with the prosecutor. Um, that uh, train has, you know, has already passed the station. We're dealing in situation two where defense counsel is working with the probation officer independently of the prosecutor, perhaps because uh, the prosecutor was unwilling to uh, yield or unwilling, unwilling to come to um, an agreement that defense counsel wanted. So in situation two, defense counsel is left uh, with nothing um, with nothing other than to uh, try to convince the um, probation officer um, that uh, these favorable facts should be included in the PSR. And again, they're couched in terms of the mitigating factors. And the goal in situation two is to try and get the probation officer to include these favorable facts in the PSR. In situation three, if the PSR contains something that you don't like, you would, as defense uh, counsel, object to it at the sentencing hearing um, and argue that the PSR is wrong or should be modified by the judge. So uh, situation three represents the situation where uh, notwithstanding your um, 
your advocate, notwithstanding, uh, you're advocating to the probation officer that um, this mitigating factor applies or that that aggravating factor doesn't apply, um, the probation officer still goes forward and includes that awful aggravating factor or includes that awful fact about your client and leaves out that um, you know favorable fact about your client. And so at the time of sentence, um, you as defense counsel, um, you know, uh, strongly, um, strongly take exception to the fact that the probation officer included that uh, unfavorable fact or failed to include that favorable fact, and you raise it in your oral argument to the judge, and you fight um, tooth and nail um, for it to either be redacted from the proba- from the PSI if it's something unfavorable, or you arg- argue strenuously that um, it should have been included if it was a mitigating factor that you feel you had a substantial basis for. And that's um, how the dance works. Um, as you can tell, um, there's a lot of uh, advocating that the defense attorney can do post-conviction in order to get um, his client a favorable sentence that is in the interest of justice and to uh, prevent his client from um, having to serve any time in prison uh, or jail for the offense. Um, however, at the end of the day, um, I, can't, um, I can't stress this enough, it is the judge who imposes the sentence and um, you know, defense attorney, attorneys um, argue strenuously um, in favor of their clients and make very, uh, very uh, strong and, um, and substantive arguments, but sometimes they lose. Uh, they lose, and the judge decides to, um, you know, to impose a sentence greater than what they were arguing for. When that happens, then defense counsel can um, potentially appeal the sentence um, to the extent that um, the appellate rights were not waived by the defendant at the time of plea. That is an option. Um, in state courts, that o- that option always exists. In federal courts. Um, sadly, um, that is something that um, can and oftentimes is waived by the defense counsel. Uh, but again, um, the right to you know, appeal doesn't automatically guarantee that an appellate uh, division will uh, overturn the sentence and remand it back to the trial court. Um, in some cases, especially when there's been a plea, um, the appellate division is very um, unlikely to disrupt uh, that plea, and uh, that is enshrined in case law. Um, Pleas are basically um, considered sacrosanct, and the burden for um, the burden for overturning a sentence and remanding it is um, is a very high burden indeed. So I hope you found this helpful. Um, I was uh, trying to give you a little overview of um, what it's like in criminal in uh, criminal federal court uh, after a defendant has been sentenced. Um, if you have any questions whatsoever, feel free to get in touch with me anytime. Uh, you can shoot me a tweet, um, hit me up on LinkedIn, or um, email me.